I do think it's possible to go on pretty much any path. And if you give it time and effort, it can go from, you know, I'm indifferent to this to I really like this to it may become a passion for you. But you have to give it that time in order for it to transform from interest to passion or that will never happen. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. This episode was previously recorded and published on the Outperform podcast. Our guest today, Jeff Hayden, loves to write. Jeff's a popular columnist and editor for Inc. Magazine, a sought-after ghostwriter, LinkedIn influencer, and the author of his own book, The Motivation Myth. Back last year, Jeff had almost 50 million views of his LinkedIn and Inc. articles. So, Jeff, welcome. It's great to have you on Outperform. Hey, it's great to be here. And, and I clearly, you're slumming. I see you had Daniel Coyle on not too long ago. So if you're now down to me, then the bottom of the barrel cannot be far away. Yeah, you know, we try to go in order, but uh, <laughs> you probably wrote his book, so don't sell yourself short. No, heck no. <laughs> I would like to grow up and be Dan, who, by the way, is a really nice guy. Yeah, he, he was a great guy to talk to, and he really just yeah. into his subject matter. So you write a lot. You've ghostwritten a number of best-selling books and even more articles, presentations, scripts, reports, you name it, and even one eulogy. Eulogies. Yeah, eulogy. Yeah, eulogies. We'll have to ask you about yep. that. So, so what got you into... Writing and ghostwriting in particular? The short answer is I uh, worked my way through college in a manufacturing plant, and I really liked manufacturing. The jobs that I interviewed for after college were all with like 40-year-old men working in cubicles, which today I would love to be a 40-year-old man, but at the time it seemed like hot death. And so I went to work for another manufacturing company that had just started a plant in the town I lived. 17 years in, I was running a plant. Thought... I had achieved everything that I wanted to. Life was going to be great. This was my dream. And about three years after that, I thought, wow, I do not want to do this anymore. I was, I'll say I was discussing, but my wife will say that I was whining about the fact that I didn't like my job anymore. And so she would say, you know, what else do you want to do? I didn't really have any ideas. And one day I just said, you know, I think I'd like to write. I had no journalism background, no writing background, no nothing. The only things that I've ever, I had ever written were for work. And so it seemed kind of stupid, but I kept talking about it. And so one day she came home and said, hey, I got you your first writing job. Met a guy who needs a press release. So I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but have you had something that you thought you really, really wanted to do? And then you get the opportunity to do it and then you get really scared because now it's real. Well, that was me. I never written a press release, looked around, tried to figure out the format, tried to figure out how to do it. It's the worst paying job I think I've ever had based on like dollars earned per amount of time spent. But the guy liked it and hired me to do a couple other things. I still had my job, obviously. I wasn't going to quit what I was doing. But I was trying to figure out how else to make a living trying to write. So my wife signed me up on Elance, which I think is called like Upwork now. Upwork, yeah. Yep. So she signed me up there. She created an account for me. She actually was bidding on jobs for me, and she got me more jobs because I was a little too scared to do so. And so every time she would get me a job, I would go, I got to do that? I don't know how to do that. But I would figure it out. So the whole thing about ghostwriting is, you know, I didn't have anything necessarily that I wanted to say at the time. I didn't have something in me that was you know, dying to get out. I just wanted to figure out a way if it was possible to make a living doing that. 
I didn't do anything in my own name until my wife finally convinced me that my marketing problem with ghostwriting, I don't know, ghostwriting is like Fight Club. In the first rule of Fight Club is you can't talk about Fight Club. Right. And ghostwriting is the same way. And so it's really hard. It, say, say you were going to hire me to do something for you. And you would say, oh, tell me who you've worked for. Well, I can't do that. Well, show me some stuff you've done. Well, I can't really do that either. So you, you, you can't even point to the book. If I had you write a book. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, some of my NDAs seem so comprehensive that my firstborn child is probably tied up in there somewhere. But nonetheless, so she convinced me. My wife again said, you need some stuff in your own name. And I said, nobody wants to read anything I wrote. You know, they, they want to read the stuff for the people that I'm writing for, because by then I had managed to work on some really good projects was for some really great people. That was going really well, but I didn't think anybody wanted to read anything by me. And so we looked around and I, I pitched like the top 10 business sites at the time, and only one of them responded. And it was a site called BNet, which now is just part of CBS Money Watch. But at the time, it was like their business CNET. They took me on and... I figured out how to attract an audience fairly quickly. And so then when the editor there went over to Inc and he said, Hey, do you want to come over to Inc? And it's a bigger platform. And so I did. And so that's how I ended up on Inc. Interesting. So as I, as I mentioned before, I think last year, your articles on Inc were read by more than 20 million readers. You've got everyone in the world talking about content marketing, putting out volumes, uh, you know, trying to write, read things that write things that people will want to read. And you, you had 20 million people read your weekly art articles last year. So what, what's your secret? I know you have a following, but you're not, I mean, you're not marketing these things. You're not buying paid ads to them. What's the formula? Uh, if maybe you may not want to give it away, but what for all these people are desperate to have good content marketing out there. What, what's the formula or some nuggets of the formula that's worked for you? Probably the first thing that I did that I was told not to do when I, especially when I started with BNet, they said, you know, you need to carve out your own niche because this is such a crowded marketplace. This is back in 2011 when it was not nearly as crowded as it is now. But they were saying, you need your own niche. And I thought, if I'm wanting lots of page views because I'm going to get paid that way, I want the biggest audience I can get. I want the biggest readership. I want the broadest topics that have the most chance of resonating with as many people as possible. You know, happiness, success, achieving goals, networking, better relationships, interviewing, leadership, management stuff. I went that way. And, and the editors at the time kept criticizing me for it and saying, you know, you really need to narrow this down. And, I, and then one month I hit a million page views and then they all got quiet. <laughs> and so... A lot of people also talked about the social media aspect of it. You know, you need to be really active on social media. You need to respond to every comment. You need to build your audience that way. And I thought, you know, the social media thing, I guess, might pay off. But I'm better off, instead of spending an hour responding to people's comments and saying, oh, thanks for your input. Oh, great point. I'm better off just creating more content because that's my, that's where I live. Where I got lucky is that, Early on at Inc., I was doing really well. And back when LinkedIn had LinkedIn Today and they were just aggregating articles, you couldn't publish directly, but they would go out and see what users were sharing. And it was, it was that whole algorithm. I had a bunch of stuff that popped up on category pages and sometimes even on their homepage. And so when they started the influencer program, they said, hey, we know you know how to generate audience and, and we know you write things that our audience is interested in. Would you like to be an influencer? And of course I said, yes. Yeah. So it's the only time I'll be on the list with Bill Gates and Branson and all those guys. But that helped me a lot too, because early on in that program, they anything you wrote, 
they pushed at users hard because they were trying to build a platform. But that was kind of a lucky, well, I wouldn't say lucky. I, I guess I was, I was at the right place at the right time and had the numbers that made that possible. So two questions based on this. One, I know Inc's very focused on, on title. And mm -hmm. I think they say the title matters a lot. So, so if you write about anything, where do the topics come from? And how do you, what is the style that you think resonates? And then how important is title to uh, the article itself? Yeah, title is a, obviously a really big thing because that's, that's people's entree into what you do. I stayed away and have continued to stay away from like the inflammatory title or the contrary title. My goal has been to build an audience that maybe will come back. And I think when you oversell in your headline or use bait and switch in your headline, then you're ensuring that that person is not going to come back. So there's a little bit of a balance there. The headline is a, is an important thing. And to be honest with you, I forgot the second part of your question. Topic. So if you're, if you're across anywhere, where do you get uh, your topic ideas from? For a long time, all I had to do was think about something I didn't do well and what I had done to try to get better at it. And I figured that since I'm decidedly average, then if I wasn't very good at it or I had to struggle with that, then other people probably did too. That worked really well. And then now I, I interact with lots of people who are very smart and very talented and very skilled, and I get to talk to them. And that's an endless source of material because, you know, if I sit down with somebody really smart for 20 minutes, I can get five or 10 different things out of that that'll spark an idea. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate fast forward to the end of 2024 and think of your goals what can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding if you want to learn a new language you absolutely should get Babbel. be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. It's designed by real people for real conversations. I've tried Babbel. It's fun, it's interactive, and in just a few minutes a day, I could see that it was making a difference and helping my comprehension and retention. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com slash elevate. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash elevate, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash elevate. 
Rules and restrictions may apply. And you reach out to these folks unsolicited and ask them to interview. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I wasn't always able to get to the people that I can get to now. I tried early on and it was the silence was deafening. Um, and so then I just took a step back and said, okay, I'm on it. That has a credibility of its own. So who can I talk to? And, you know, it's the guy that's started a cat litter company, you know, made out of coconut shavings or something like that. I could get those people. And then I would look at that and say, okay, I'm going to talk to them. I'll find out what they do. I'll get practical, useful, actionable stuff. And then I tried to do a really good job with that. And then if I leveraged that and went to someone else, maybe slightly up the rung, so to speak, I could say, hey, I'd love to talk to you about this. Here's some examples of the things that I do. And they would look at those and see that, oh, okay, well, this isn't the same stuff, different day. That's pretty interesting. He did a good job with that. That's kind of cool. I, that would be fun for me too. And so I just kept clicking my way up, building off of the things that I had done. And then I got a couple of lucky breaks along the way where people actually pitched me something and they got me in front of someone who was probably outside of my league, so to speak. But then I could use that to say, oh, hey, by the way, I talked to Ashton Kutcher the other day and would love to talk to you about so-and-so. And that was a credibility enhancer too. And so now I've gotten to the point where I have enough stuff like that and I've done enough of those things that I still can't open every door, but I can get in front of a lot of people now. But it was time and effort in building that base as opposed to, you know, wow, I'm just going to go right to the top and hope that this works out and then get depressed when it doesn't and quit. And, and Jeff, what I'm hearing from you is I think a lot of people who get into content and particularly, you know, trying to run content related to their business, they write a lot of self-serving content that's really just not that interesting and doesn't create a lot of value. It sounds like the common thread here is focusing on creating value, multiple points of value for your readers, for the people you're interviewing. And, and then that just seems to come back in, in spades to you. Is that, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I, I run into this, especially with the PR folks. They've got their messaging for whoever it is. Like, let's pretend it's you and you want to talk about something relating to something that your company is doing. That's cool. But if that's all we're going to talk about, nobody wants to read it. It's boring. They don't get anything from it. It only serves you. So I always kind of push back and say, okay, we can, that can be part of this and we can figure out a way to do this. But we need stuff that the person reading it can say, okay, I was either educated, informed, entertained, motivated, something. I need takeaways for the reader. And then you get to bask in the reflected glow of your wit and wisdom and expertise. You will look good because of that and people will check you out. And way more people will read this than would have if it's just a thinly veiled PR piece. It has to be, you know, you read those things that say, you know, your content can be 20% self-promotional and 80% value to the reader. It ought to be 100 to the reader. Yeah. If you don't do that, then people sniff it out instantly. If it's 2% self-promotional, people sniff it out right away and they're gone. You don't build a bigger audience by burning readers. Well, I want to shift a little bit to talk about your own book, The Motivation Myth, but I can't let you off before we hear the story of ghostwriting the eulogy. So can you give, <laughs> can you give that one to us quickly, how that came about? Was it a yeah. last minute funeral? Like what was, what was the impetus? No, it was, a, it was a, the, I can't tell you. You can't, you I can't tell us I, yeah. yeah. I have an actual NDA for this, believe it or not. I believe it. Um, yeah. But it was, a, it was a, a person of some note who had passed away. And one of the people that was asked to speak at the funeral 
was high profile as well and was really worried about coming across poorly and that person knew that some other folks were speaking that were dynamic and engaging and whatever. And so, you know, he was petrified and, and said, Hey, can you help me with this? And what's funny about it is that he really didn't even know the person very well. Right. <laughs> so we didn't even, we didn't even have all these cool little stories. Um, but it, it went across really well and, and he was happy, which is always my main goal. So I read that it was actually the Metallica guitarist that sparked your interest in exploring the topic of motivation and a lot of the misconceptions behind it. Can you talk more about that conversation you had with him and how that led to the book? Yeah, I, before I talked to, that's Kirk Hammond. Before I talked to Kirk, I for whatever reason, I'd gotten a bunch of either LinkedIn comments or emails from people saying, you know, hey, I've read some of the stuff you do about achieving goals and things, and I just really feel stuck, and I haven't found this if I summed it up, it was they were saying that they hadn't gotten this lightning bolt of inspiration that said, here's my passion, here's my purpose, here's my goal. I've got all the motivation I need to get rolling. And they felt stuck. And so I was talking to Kirk and just about you know playing guitar. And he had played for a while when he was young, put it in the closet, happened to go to a Jimi Hendrix movie, came home. This is how he describes it. He said, you know, I opened the closet door and I looked at my guitar and I said, you know, I just want to play you better. That was his thing. If you think about it, that's been his mission ever since. But it wasn't, I want to be a rock star. I want to sell 113 million albums. I want to sell out 50,000 seat stadiums. It wasn't any of that stuff. He just wanted to get better. And if you talk to him now, he is still trying to get better. And so it's process for him, not this eventual goal. And so I, I sat there and thought, you know, Everybody else that I talked to that has done some incredible thing, none of them had that lightning bolt moment. Venus Williams, she didn't have that. Richard Branson did not start an airline because he had always dreamed of starting an airline. That was an accidental thing because a flight got canceled and he was stranded in, I think, in the Virgin Islands or something. All these people just picked out something where they thought, you know, I'm interested in that. I would like to get better. And that created just enough motivation to have them put in a little bit of effort which led to a tiny bit of accomplishment or success or improvement, which feels good because it always feels good when we get better at something. And that created this cool little virtuous cycle of effort, achievement, fulfillment. That gives you a little bit of motivation, which gets you to the next day and lets you start it all over again. So that conversation with Kirk kind of made all that click because I had kind of been floating around in my head, but I had never really articulated it before. You know, it's similar to a study a friend sent me, which we can include in the show notes, that uh, someone had done saying that, you know, around passion and that the passions were really developed over time rather kind of then found in this lightning bolt moment. And there was a real myth that everyone just found their passion versus developed their passion through a lot of trial and error. Yeah, Cal Newport, that's one of his big premises. I think his book is So Good They Can't Ignore You. I think that if you pick out something that you're just interested in and you work at trying to get better at it or gain expertise or whatever that is, then the exposure to it, the improvement that you get, the depth of knowledge that you gain, it makes it more interesting and it can become a passion. I started riding bicycles because I felt really out of shape, couldn't run because my knees are terrible thought, okay, bikes are low impact. Let me do this. And I hated the freaking bike for the first couple of weeks. Just hated. I'm serious. I, if that did not come out as contemptuous as it should, I hated the bike. But then I got a little better. I could ride a little bit farther. It didn't feel quite so bad. 
I started to learn a little bit about equipment. I started to learn a little bit about nutrition and stuff. I, I started to learn more about technique. That got interesting. And before long, it became this like oyster or this onion that you keep peeling layers away. And as you do that, that interest becomes, I wouldn't say cycling ever became a passion, but it was really fun and I really enjoy it. And it's part of my life now. And it was not something that I liked going into it. So I do think it's possible to go on pretty much any path. And if you give it time and effort, it can go from, you know, I'm indifferent to this, to I really like this, to it may become a passion for you. But you have to give it that time in order for it to transform from interest to passion, or that will never happen. And I've never had a moment where, like, I found a passion without going through that process. I don't know. Have you? No. And, and, you know, you and I were talking about something, I think, offline, as I was trying to work through it in my book around resilience and, and is, which is the chicken and which is the egg? Are, are we physically resilient on something and then we kind of become emotionally driven by it? Or do we, is it all in our head and then we can physically complete something? And in, in, in talking to a lot of people, it seems that it was actually doing something physically. And, and that doesn't have to mean exercise. That can mean with your hands or writing that, that people didn't think they could do or hadn't like then sort of surprised them. Then they thought about it more and then they kind of did the next thing. And it, it, it's sort of a hamster wheel. Yeah. I think, I think it can be either way. Although I run into very few people where the, the emotional or the lightning bolt thing happens first right. for most people that I know it's effort. And then that leads to a little more resiliency, a little more mental toughness, also more motivation, all of that other stuff. But the effort usually produces the emotional stuff, not the other way around. At least, and it definitely does not for me. Sometimes it's it's about thinking less and doing it. I mean, a great example is my daughter and I were swimming at a lake. I wanted to do a swim. We, we looked at the swim. I, I told, I guessed that it was about a quarter of a mile. And so we just swam across the lake together and it was actually a half mile swim. And by the time we got back, it was a mile swim. My daughter's 14 and she's picking up swimming. Definitely the longest she ever swam. If I had told her it was a mile swim, you know, she wouldn't have done it. We just, we just went in, did it. We got back. And now in her head, she knows she can swim a mile. So I'm guessing that will change how she thinks about it next time. But if, if she had really thought about it or hemmed and hawed and didn't say, yeah, let's do it. And we just went in 60 seconds. Then I don't think she would have had that small physical win that then feeds back into, hey, maybe I can swim longer and harder than I believe. Yeah, I, we have all these internal limits and they're self-imposed and we've dreamed them up. And one of the fun ways to ratchet those up is to do things like what you just described. When I was training to ride a Grand Fondo, those are mass participation cycling events. The guy that was working with me is a pro mountain biker. And he actually told me the night before that I was going to go ride this shorter Grand Fondo that was like 70 miles. And I said, I've never ridden but like 40 in a day. And he said, you can do this, go. And so I drove an hour and a half to where it was and I did it and it was hard, but that changed every day past that because then those 30 or 40 mile rides, they didn't seem so bad because I've done 70. And so I know that in my head. And so that, that whole ratcheted up thing, that works really, really well. That works well with work. It works with all sorts of stuff. I've, I'm convinced that almost every limit we have is self-imposed. What's that? There's a seal that says, when you think you are physically completely spent, you've done like 40% of what you're actually capable of. And he's probably right. He knows better than me. Hi, everyone. If you're not a subscriber to Harvard Business Review, you're missing out on a wealth of leadership content. 
Widely acknowledged as the leader in business leadership information, Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their incredible podcast. Premium subscribers can also access a selection of Harvard Business School real-world case studies and scenarios that provide business leaders with the learnings from how business leaders manage their business, their team, and themselves. When I need a source or data that I can trust for one of my articles, HBR is my go-to. Just this week, I referenced one of their articles about the efficacy of required diversity training, which had the most data behind it by far. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free, after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at just $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. With everyone fighting for attention these days, how can you get your business to stand out and connect with customers? It's easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media postings, and even event management. You'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track your growth. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing that your emails are actually reaching your customers, thanks to their best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. Constant Contact was actually the first email marketing platform I ever used almost 20 years ago, and it's a testament to the product's quality that it's still the standard for email marketing today. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Yeah, and you know, perfect example, and this will run hopefully after I've I've done this, but we are a company sponsoring a 24-hour London to Paris bike ride, 170 miles. I, I uh, Going on Sunday, I signed up for it. I didn't really look at the details. I just started reading all the stuff this week about, like, we're actually only sleeping three and a half hours on a boat, and it's 38-mile things before the break, and we need reflective clothing, or we're breaking the law in Paris at 4 a.m. in the morning. Had I actually really thought through all of this stuff, I probably wouldn't have done it. But the fact that I just signed up and did it, and then after I do it, I'm sure it will bring down a lot of other self and limits that I've imposed on myself. So I, I actually think that, the more you just say, Nike had something with it, just do it. The more you say yes to something rather than thinking through it, you're better off than, than analyzing it too much. That's another thing that I, I talk about in my book. It's the whole idea of goals. One of the things we're taught is that you're supposed to you know, pick out this, maybe it's a big, hairy, audacious goal, but some massive goal. And then you're supposed to have a laser-like focus on it and always be thinking about your goal because that's going to motivate you. And I think it's actually demotivating. Since we're talking about physical stuff, say you want to go run a marathon, but you're not a runner. Yeah. If your training plan is, you know, today I'm going to run a mile because I'm just getting started and you come home and you feel terrible and your knees hurt and you ache and you're out of breath and you're laying on the couch. If you pop your head up and think, oh my gosh, I got to run 26 of these, you're going to quit. 
because the distance from here to there is just too darn far. So it's actually demotivating. So like what you're doing with this is, you know, you've signed up for this ride. <laughs> so you're in. So now you're looking at all the details. And what's interesting about it is that those have been laid out for you, basically. But the goal, which is to ride from London to Paris, that's already set. And the process you will use, that's informed by the goal. So I think big goals should inform the process that you create that will get you there. And then once you have your process, you focus on your process. What do I need to do today? What do I need to do tomorrow? Whatever it is. And you kind of forget the big goal because your process will take you there. And at some point you'll pop your head up and look across and say, okay, wow, I'm closing in on this and this is actually working and I feel good about my progress and I will get there. But if you start out in London and you ride five miles and you think, oh my gosh, I got to get to Paris, yeah. you're dead. <laughs> so your goal will be, okay, what's the first stop? And then what happens here? And then what happens here? If you just keep clicking those off, you'll get there. I've ridden up mountains where it had tons of switchbacks and I played the game with myself of, okay, just get to the next turn yeah, and then see where you are. And then it's get to the next turn and see where you are. And if you just keep clicking those off, eventually you get to the top. And I would try desperately not to look up and see if I could see light, you know, between the trees, which would tell me I was getting closer to the top because I didn't see it. It's really disheartening. I, goals are great, but they should only inform the process you create that will allow you to achieve your goal. I, you know, it's funny. I wrote something similar on a Friday four that became apparent when I did my first Olympic triathlon. I actually oscillated. I think there were times when I was feeling good where it helped to look far ahead um, mm-hmm. and, and know where the next thing was. And there were times when like, I just needed to look two feet in front of me because it was too too yeah. demoralizing to, to look too far ahead. So I, I, I think there's there's times we want to change their peripheral vision. But basically what you're talking about, and which I think a lot of people have realized who are high performing in business and their life, is this is the same process that great coaches work with in business. They say, look, what's your BHAG? Where do you want to be at in five or 10 years? But that's not helpful every day. And then they, but they reverse engineer that. So if you want to be here in five years, then here's what we need to do in three years. Here's what we need to do in one year. And then when you go to set the quarterly goals, you look at the one year. So you are just, as I talk, I, I say, you're making down payments. Like you're doing, you're right. doing the little things that after three or four quarters, you're going to be like, holy bleep, I, I, we've done half of that big thing already. Well, what's interesting about what you said a second ago is that you oscillated between looking out and then thinking, okay, what's just the short term is you got to that place through effort and experience at training for this and, and actually doing. And so you were smart enough to know when you needed to look one way and when you needed to look the other. And that comes from experience. But if you're just starting out, you don't have that under your belt. And so that to me is why the process part is really important because then you don't have to worry about having the experience and the sense and the perspective to know that this is just how it works. But if you do one really hard thing that takes a lot of effort and takes a lot of time to get you to, that pays dividends for the rest of your life because then every time something else comes up, it'll seem really daunting, but then you'll say, but wait a minute, or like in my case, I did 100,000 push-ups. <laughs> if I could do that, then I could certainly do this or whatever it might be. And you know how it works and you know sometimes it's painful and you know sometimes you just have to put your head down and ignore everything around you. And you know other times it's cool to look up and go, wow, aren't I doing great? And so that effort thing that we were talking about way back is really important. You have to start and put in some effort and then all kinds of cool things happen after that. 
Well, let me bring your two expertises together for this next question. I run into people every day. I've written one book and I'm finishing my second and third book, which you've been super helpful uh, giving me feedback on the second book. Every time I talk to people, I want to write a book. I want to write a book. And I see them a year later, they want to write a book. So knowing what you know about writing and motivation, if if an aspiring author came to you for advice on how to get started writing their book or a eulogy or whatever they were doing and stay motivated along the way, what, what advice would you give them? All right. So the first thing is you have to be willing to say whatever it is that I write, it is in total service to the reader. The only thing I care about is that the reader will finish it and will be motivated, educated, inspired, informed, whatever that whole package is. This is all for the reader and that's all I care about. And if you can't do that, don't start because you'll get part of the way in and that ego gratification you're looking for is not going to happen and you're probably going to quit. So that's the first place. Then you have to have something of value to actually give them. And it's easy to talk yourself into whether it's valuable or not, but that's a good time to talk to friends and stuff. Try this. If you're getting ready to write a book and you have a topic, spend five minutes talking about not the book, but just about the topic to somebody. If they seem interested and they seem engaged, and maybe you're onto something, and if they check out, then you haven't figured it out yet. That's an easy little litmus test. And you know, you and I talked about your book early on, just conceptually, and I thought, yeah, that sounds really cool. That's cool. So I was into it. Not that I'm the perfect uh, person to judge, but nonetheless, that gives you an indication. And, and then the part three is making it happen. So I assume that's where you're going next. The part three then is to say, okay, and here's the best part, or here's the here's the concrete part. Every book is a journey, if we're doing a journey, but every article is too. You're taking a reader from point A, which is where they do not know or cannot do the things that you're going to help them with, and then you're going to drop them off at the end, motivated, inspired, informed, educated, whatever those things are, you have something you're trying to accomplish. Break that journey down. And you don't have to have some formal outline you were taught to do in high school. You just need to kind of bullet point it out. What's this walk look like? How will I get them there? Then you can use that to inform your, or your process as you go along, and it will change. Your book will not end up being the same way it was in your head early on. That's happened to you. It always happens to me. That's part of it. But you don't know what needs to change until you get going. And so then layer out a, layer stuff out a little process and say, here's how I will actually accomplish this. When will I work? How much time will I put into it each time? What's my expectation? What's my outcomes? You know, turn it into a whole bunch of deliverables with yourself as the person you need to deliver to. Otherwise, if you wait for the moment when it's right to start writing, then you will never start writing. There has to be some process that you use. I'm big on process, as you can tell. Yeah, it, it, it's same advice you were giving before, right? Know, know why you're doing it, making sure it's valuable to other people, and then, and then break it down into steps where you're going to feel good along the way that you're making progress. It is really, it's like building a house. It's the same thing. You got a foundation and you're going to build your way up, but you got to put the effort in and you have to figure out when you're going to do it. So I I know people that have great ideas and they keep saying, I'm going to find the time to write at some point. Well, if you really want to do this, then figure it out in your schedule and make it happen. And once you get going and you see that it's going pretty well and it starts to feel good to you, then you won't have any trouble sticking to your schedule. So you mentioned earlier that the Richard Branson, and I know I know you dined with Richard Branson, uh, who's you know an incredible Ooh, entrepreneur. Dined, put put quotes around that, but yeah, okay. <laughs> he gave you half a sandwich, I think, is is the story. But but what yes. else? What did you learn, yeah. or what surprised you about him 
particularly in the context of, of motivation and someone who's a highly motivated entrepreneur? Richard is known for like the stunts and the PR things that he's done. He's, he's clearly an adventurous guy, but he does those things in service of the company. And so I, I was talking to him about that and I said, you know, it's kind of crazy that you're willing to do like this balloon ride across the Pacific just to promote your company. And he said, you got that totally backwards. Part of the reason that I built these companies is because they afford me the possibility to go on these adventures. And I thought that's actually kind of cool. And if you had to construct the perfect life, wouldn't it be that whatever you do professionally affords you the opportunities to do the things that you enjoy personally and that those that work life balance thing, you know, there is no separation of that because it's all just part of what you do and part of what you enjoy. So that was the coolest thing there. And and actually, one of the things that I started doing more of after I talked to him was finding ways to take either interests that I currently have or things that I was interested in, but had never been able to explore and to use my business side to allow me to do so. So whether it's writing about that or whether it's doing something for Inc. about that or or some of the ghostwriting stuff that I still do, I would seek out those opportunities to either learn about things I wanted to or get involved in things I wanted to and have that line kind of blend. Um, I know that's not always possible for everyone, but then again, I kind of think it is. So to use a really cheesy example, if you really like helping other people out, I don't care what your job is, you can find ways to do that. <laughs> that's not hard. If you like to mentor people, no matter what your job is, you can find ways to do that. So I do think it's possible in almost every context, but that was probably the thing that I got most out of Richard is just this whole idea of let your work serve your life and your life serve your work. And if you can create that blend, then the work-life balance then kind of goes away. Yeah, we, we've actually banned the term work-life balance at Acceleration Partners. And, and, and for the reason, actually, you just said, we, we much prefer work-life integration, which is how, how do all these pieces of... Because balance assumes that you're perfectly in scale, which is never the case. You have... Never have. Right. And integration is like, they're all puzzle pieces. They're connected. It fits together. Some weeks you do more work. Some weeks you do whatever. But you find all these things that, that give you energy and, and find them interconnected. So I agree a lot with, with what he said there. The other thing I hate about the work-life balance thing is that a lot of people think that that means balance means spending the same amount of hours on work as or on life as you do on work. And that's really hard to do as well, especially if you consider the, the life part to be me time. But what you can do is try to balance out the quality of those. And so the time you do have to yourself, are you just watching whatever happens to be on TV or are you watching something that you really wanted to watch? Are you out doing things that you wanted to do? I, I ran into Michael Fassbender, the actor at Daytona in January, and he drives Ferraris like on, it's an amateur thing. Well, in fact, they pay a ton of money to be able to do so. Um, so it's a rich guy sport, but he drives Ferrari race cars and loves it. You've never seen a more bouncy, lively, engaged guy and I said, you love this, don't you? And he said, I do. He said, and some, he said, not to make it sound terrible, but you know, we're on movie sets sometimes and it's 12, 14 hour days and you're just kind of stuck there. And it's, it, he said, don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining, but it is a grind. And he said, I look forward to doing this stuff. Even if it's only a weekend, every three months, it's the most fun thing I get to do. And that keeps me going. And so that whole idea of work-life balance Balance out the quality part of it because you probably will never get to balance out the hours part. You should focus just as hard on how can I get the most out of my me time as you can that you do at work. 
When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help define the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Any candidate who's looking for a job is going to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and many like myself use it every day, which also makes it the best place to hire. LinkedIn gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free today at linkedin.com practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right. One last question for you, getting a little personal. So what's the biggest mistake or failure you've made in your life that you've learned the most from? Um, wow. That, I, that's like a, a buffet of choices there. I'll go with a professional one um, just because it's the first thing that popped to mind. I worked for R.R. Donnelly, like I told you, and I had worked my way up to a, a very nice spot. And there was, I don't know how to describe this without it being really long-winded, but there ended up being a difference of opinion between me and someone else who had greater authority than me. And I did not back down and I didn't realize kind of that there might be other agendas at play. And so I basically got asked to leave over something that had I known we were going to get to that point, I wouldn't have made a big deal as big a deal over it. But I had gotten my ego, at least at work, had run away with me a little bit and my sense of self was bigger than it was. And you know, you add all the hubris, I guess is the word for it, but I had reached that point and I didn't read the room and I didn't read the situation well and got asked to leave. That was okay, and it actually turned out really well. Not that I think fate had anything to do with it. I think if you're trying, when bad things happen, you can always make them turn out well if you try, when you look back, even though they suck at the time. And so I, from then on, have tried really hard to always take a step back, no matter what situation I'm in, and say, okay, am I a little too big for my britches here? Is my head a little bit too big? Am I missing something? Is there a question that's being asked, but there's an unasked question underneath of it that I need to be paying attention to? Because a lot of people, a lot of times people won't ask you the question they really want to ask, but you can find that question within the one they are asking. And so I still have a big ego in some ways, and then I'm horribly insecure at others. But I learned a lot from that in that you know, you're never the biggest person in the room and, and you're never as smart as you think you are. <laughs> and I'm definitely not as smart or I was definitely not as smart as I thought I was at that moment. Good wisdom for everyone to take away. And that also helped me if I can finish or if I can add to that, that also helped me from a leadership point of view, because sometimes then I would look at people and think, why are you doing that? And then I would take a step back and say, okay, there's more to this than I'm seeing. There must be some other motivation other than that this person either doesn't want to do this or has a different agenda or whatever else. There might be something else underneath of that that I'm missing. And that helped me be a better leader because I looked past the face value part and started to look for the underlying part. And for the most part, people people want to do well. They want to do a good job. So if they are not, there's usually something else there besides just their lack of willingness to do a good job. And so as a leader, it's your job to look for what that is. And maybe you can't fix it. Maybe the situation cannot be fixed, but you can at least try. 
All right. Well, Jeff, I'm fascinated by the topic of motivation, as you know, and why some people are high achievers and others seem to just struggle to get through the day and a few small goals. So I find your work, your writing and your research really inspirational. And uh, I, I will continue to be a reader along with your, your millions of other fans. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. All right, we'll include links to Jeff's website, his book, and his columns uh, in our show notes afterwards. And we hope you enjoyed our discussion with Jeff Hayden. If you got something out of it or any of our episodes, we really hope you're motivated to give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps us know what content you're interested in so we can try to bring you more of it. And until next time, keep outperforming. Hello, Elevate Podcast listeners. I wanted to let you know about my friend Darius and his amazing show, The Greatness Machine. The Greatness Machine is one of the top-ranked educational and business podcasts in the country, recently ranking top five in the entrepreneurial category on iTunes. Here's why I love Darius and The Greatness Machine. It really comes down to a few things. The Greatness Machine has amazing guests from the likes of sports icon Gabby Reese, worldwide news sensation Amanda Knox, FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss, and Tiny Habits expert and author BJ Fogg, to NHL Hall of Famer Chris Pronger, and hundreds more. Darius keeps it real. I always learn something new, and I have a few laughs. And he always also asks great questions, and is a really entertaining and engaging host. The Greatness Machine is where you get to be a fly on the wall and listen to Darius and his amazing group of guests talk about how they got to where they are today and hear stories of people who have lived their passions to create greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. So if you want to be entertained while learning from some of the greatest and most accomplished people in the world, this is definitely a show for you to check out. Subscribe to The Greatness Machine today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.